My name's Matt. I also serve here at Cross Life uh, with the men and women, and it's my privilege to introduce our speakers for this evening. What we're going to do first is we're going to have three college students share their testimonies. And all a testimony is, is testifying of what God has done in their life. It isn't uh, anything to do with them, but it's God's grace in their life and how he's worked through them. We're going to have three students, all different ages and different walks of their uh, of their life with the Lord, and they're going to just testify about his grace in their lives. And so I'm going to introduce them all three rapid fire. The first is going to be Luke Daly. And Luke wanted me to note that his favorite color is turquoise. <laughs> but Luke is a Billings native. He went to Billings Central, and he's a business finance major and is also the kicker for the football team. Next, we'll have Madison Berger. Madison's a Bozeman native from right here, and she's a sophomore, going into her sophomore year at MSU in, get this, cell biology and neuroscience. Excellent. Excited to hear from Madison. And then thirdly, we've got Noah Phillips. And Noah is a super senior uh, in elementary ed. <laughs> there we go. In elementary ed from Manhattan, a Manhattan tiger, and he likes the Packers. And so... With that, Luke, I'll invite you up uh, to begin our testimonies. Probably raise this mic. I'm a lot taller than you, Matt. Uh, is there any way we could do that? Is that cool? Yeah. All right, thanks. Maybe not that high. <laughs> that's good. That's fine. Matthew 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of God will. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If I were to have died a year ago, I would have gone to hell. Um, this verse described the past 18 years of my life. I was a man who professed to know Christ, but yet had no relationship with him, nor made him Lord over all things in my life. I grew up in a Christian family, but I didn't truly have a relationship with Christ. I never read my Bible. It just seemed old, outdated, and dumb to me. Um, I thought I was better than people that went to church. Most of them just seemed weird and lame to me. I was very proud always wanting the best for myself and looking down on others. I hung out with the cool kids growing up, or at least I thought. I would have called myself a Christian, but I was running the hellbound race. I was living like the world. I dressed like the world, talked like the world, and loved things of this world. Listen, I was an enemy of God. James 4.4 says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. When I began high school, my pride increased tremendously. I began to party a lot with my worldly friends, consuming ridiculous amounts of drugs and alcohol, being arrested on multiple occasions, and shaming my parents. I also was caught in the snare of immoral relationships. My life was beginning to crash down on me. At the beginning of my freshman year of college, I started to begin opening up my Bible and started attending church, cross life, and athlete Bible study um, every so often. I tried juggling uh, being a Christian 
and uh, living like the world. I was beginning to go down a good path, but I still chose to live for my flesh. It was a hard issue. I did not want to give up on my sinful desires. I was just a dog returning to its own vomit so as a fool repeats their own folly, as said in Proverbs 26.11. Instead of choosing Christ, I allowed myself to go back into the calamity of sin. After living in sexual immorality, I eventually was halted when I received the news I was going to be a father. I realized I was not saved. I began to see the consequences of my sin, both temporal and eternal. Romans 6, the wages of sin are death. I was headed for eternal damnation. This was, the, this was the turning point in my life. I began to recognize the need for a savior, the desperate need. I repented. I had a change of heart and mind towards who Christ was, which has allowed me to change my own actions. I surrendered my life over to him. I trust that his way is the right way and have put my full faith in him. I know now the true meaning of what it means to be born again. This is the only way the Bible says you can be free from the penalty and bondage of sin by changing your mind about Christ and putting complete faith in him. Mark 1.15, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. It has been tough being a student athlete and a single dad, but the Lord has been able to keep me upright and steadfast in his will for my life. I will be living with fall, uh, three solid Christian brothers this year, which I'm so thankful. Zach might even be in here. He's over there. Um, but God has sh showed me that life is not about Luke Daly anymore. He has allowed me to grow in humility, love, self-control, and selfness because of my son. I know that I'm free from the penalty of sin now, so therefore I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I li who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2, verse 20 through 21. Whatever I used to count as gain, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. By God's grace, I strive to put Christ first. And by God's grace, I offer my body as a slave to righteousness rather than sin. I now use the abilities and blessings that God has bestowed upon my life to glorify him and not myself. By God's grace, I will continue to fight the good fight by holding on to the word of life, allowing God to work through me and that his will be done in my life. This place we call earth is not my home. And Lord willing, I will strive to be more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, verse 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. My entire life, I had an inaccurate view of who Christ Jesus was that would have led me to hell. I thank God for using the circumstances of my sin to unveil the truth about Christ and for me to change my mind and put my faith in him. I live in accordance to what Peter said about Jesus in Matthew 6, verse 17. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Who do you say Jesus is? Thank you. Okay. Everybody hear me? All right. My parents loved and served God, and their salvation was evident in the way they loved and served others. 
Their faith in Jesus, visible every day in the way they sought to raise my brother and I, was undoubtedly one of the biggest factors that led me to put my faith in Christ. One of my earliest memories I have is of my mother tucking my little brother and I into our bunk bed, settling on the floor, and reading a story from our children's Bible. To my memory, she never failed to do this when we were small. And once we were old enough to read, she never failed to encourage us to read our Bibles for ourselves. Though both my parents were very gracious and long-suffering, and I certainly tested this some days, disobedience was always punished. If I did something wrong, though, the reason behind the punishments were always explained. Angrily throwing a spoon at your mother was, for example, not honoring your father and mother, and was therefore disobeying God. Every Sunday, my parents brought us to Sunday school. There we learned that Jesus died to save us from our sins, rose again to prove it, and wanted us to be obedient to him because we love him. We memorized verses like John 3:16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And verses like John 3:23, which says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Having grown up in a Christian home, I'm not entirely sure when I was saved, but I know that it wasn't until high school that I fully submitted my life to Christ and recognized my need for his help. Every day there were temptations, chasing boys or starting unwise friendships or dressing immodestly for attention or gossiping or complaining or losing my temper. I went through my freshman and sophomore year with growing disconcertment and sadness as I watched myself do these things daily. I came to a crossroad my sophomore year when I had to make a choice. Lose a friendship and obey, that was very dear to me and obey God, or keep that friendship and disobey God. I realized that I either had to follow Christ, go all in, and submit my will to his, or else follow my own path. I chose Christ. I lost that friendship, but I found something so much better. I found a God who faithfully walks with me each day who is merciful and kind and provides strength to obey and peace when life gets hard. A God who holds each day in his hand, directing each situation as he sees fit. A God who gives me joy and contentment as I get to know him better. A God who loves me always and wants me to know and love him as well. Each year, God was faithful to show me many new aspects of himself. During my junior year in high school, he revealed himself to be a provider and a faithful friend. Though he didn't always give me exactly what I wanted, he always gave me exactly what I needed. Being an omnipresent God, seen in Jeremiah 23, 23 through 24, I knew that God was always with me, even on my very worst days. He gave me friendships that would grow me, a youth group and pastor that would encourage me, and a mentor who would guide me. During my senior year, he revealed himself to be a sovereign and all-powerful God. Though I had no idea where I was going to college or how I was possibly going to pay for it, God grew my patience as he slowly revealed his plan for me. Last year, my freshman year of college, he revealed himself to be a God of blessings and of wisdom. He gave me men and women who were following Christ, role models of what living for Christ looked like day by day. As I got more involved in cross life, I began to see how people lived as sold-out, 100% dedicated Christians. Whether that was by using time wisely or sharing testimonies or being intentional in conversation or discreetly serving others, I was able to witness people making an eternal impact, both at church, in their daily lives, and on campus. I was inspired by their joy in Christ and their thirst for discovering more about him. Every aspect of their lives seemed permeated with the gospel. What a challenge and encouragement that was for me. 
Through these people and his work in my own heart, God guided me through my first year of college and even gave me the opportunity to share my faith with others. This coming year, I look forward to see how he will choose to reveal himself in my life. I'd like to leave you with one last thing. These verses from the song, All I Have in Christ, have been both an encouragement and a challenge to me since my salvation. I hope it's the same to you. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and you led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Now, Lord, I'd be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. O oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be my only boast is you. Thank you. All right, that's going to work. Um, so as Matt kind of talked about, you know, a testimony can be about when you first came to Christ um, and kind of what that process looked like. Uh, so like the before, you know, what led you there and then what your life is like afterwards. So tonight, my testimony is maybe a little bit different than the other two in that I want to give a testimony of my life um, as a believer, uh, what my uh, three years um, as a Christian has looked like. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. I don't think, first of all, I could fit in um, in this short amount of time, my life into a few minutes um, of what led me to Christ. And then also, I just feel really led by God because I know a year ago, uh, looking at where I was spiritually to where I am now, um, that God has really, really worked on my heart this last year. And so, um, and I think in a group this size, there's definitely people that were probably in the same spot spiritually as I was a year ago. Um, so I was saved about three years ago, um, and, you know, I understood this was from the grace of God. Um, you know, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. I understood that I was only saved by faith. So, I mean, I understood it, that it was no, like not a works-based thing, nothing like that. Um, and, you know, I truly did repent and believe in the gospel. Um, but that being said, you know, my... my I guess you could look at my spiritual walk, it you know, really went well for a while, and then it was just stagnant. And as it was um, kind of at that stagnant part, I can kind of look at some sin that was there in my life, um, kind of more completely, uh, you know, sin that I wasn't fellowshipping, I wasn't being involved, I wasn't pursuing Christ. Um, that looked like me not going to church, and if I did go to church, it was only because I had roommates that would question me if I didn't go to church enough, so I would kind of drag myself to church, you know, a couple Sundays a month. Um, I would also skip Bible study and cross life, um, and I always had like a hundred excuses of why I couldn't go. And I'm sure some of my friends here could probably attest to some of the stories I came up with of why I couldn't go. Um, and then I also just, I, I would only pray and read the Bible as I... Uh, as I kind of thought I needed. So if I had a big test or if I wanted something, you know, it was kind of just like a go-to. And so, you know, this was all sin. And I, and I look at my life at the, at the time, and it's like I was like a carnal Christian. First Corinthians talks about a carnal Christian. That's what my life was. Um, and then there's two big events that kind of started to kick me towards the right direction. Uh, the first one was I was rebuked by a friend. Um, 
he basically questioned it and said, you know, if you really are a Christian, why aren't you actively participating? Why aren't you actively serving the body of Christ? And at the time, I was pretty upset and was not a big fan of what I had heard. But, I mean, the reason I was upset was because I understood that I was like, oh, he's right, you know? I mean, he's completely right. Sorry, this keeps falling. Um, and then the other thing that really kind of kicked me along was somebody came up with me last fall and said, or asked me if I'd like to meet up. And once again, this was kind of the only reason I decided that I would meet up is because I didn't want to have a conversation. Because deep down inside, I didn't really want to meet up and go through a Bible study. Um, but I knew if I said no, he would question me about it. So I thought it would just be easier to go along and do this. And so I started doing it. And we studied like hermeneutics, so how to study the Bible, right? And we use First Timothy 4, 6 through 10 as kind of our base passage. So I'm going to read that real fast. Um, Okay. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths. Rather, train yourself, in, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on a living God who is a savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So that's First Timothy 4, 6 through 10. Um, and you know, we were studying hermeneutics, so it was very just academic, it seemed like almost, like studying like what's the context, who was this written to, you know, what was Timothy doing at the time. So I mean, it was just very academic. But I mean, we studied this throughout the whole semester, and so it started to become more and more um, like living. I mean, it really started to pop out um, as the living word of God. And the fact that we're to train ourselves, that we're supposed to discipline ourselves to godliness. And it's like, I think I played football for a while. I even played a year in college. And it's like, I would never expect myself to go play in a game and perform well without discipline, right? So I mean, I would be at practice, I'd watch film, I'd be training, lifting weights, all that. But it's like, in our Christian life, how do we, I mean, why would I expect to go live a successful, godly Christian life if I wasn't disciplining myself. And so that was a huge realization. That was a huge truth that I found within this last year. Um, the other truth that I found that really uh, affected me was when I was reading Mark 16. Um, I'm gonna just read that real fast. Mark 16, 15, and 16. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel uh, to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And it's like this really just like slapped me in the face when I read it. And it's like, and I've read over this before, but this time, uh, I think it was like last uh, winter, early spring, it just really, really affected me. And just the realization that we're to go serve people. We're supposed to go minister to souls. And having that kind of that mind change that people are souls, you know, and it's like, and as it says, um, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so having that realization that it's like all of a sudden we're supposed to be disciplined in godliness, but then we're also supposed to go out and serve and make disciples and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done. I mean, two huge things, right? 
And so I guess you could encompass all of this into kind of one theme is our position in Christ is perfect. We have a perfect um, spotless position in front of Christ um, because of his work on the cross. And as a believer, we all know that. Um, but then how, you know, considering this, how then should we walk with God? And it's like I look at Ephesians, three whole chapters at the beginning explaining who we are in Christ, who we are in Christ. And then the last three, this is what you should be doing because of who you are in Christ. And I finally, like it finally just clicked of who I am in Christ. This is how I ought to live my life. And so to believers, I just kind of want to leave you with a thought. Um, how are you disciplining yourself in godliness? What does this look like? Is it just kind of, I mean, a little bit of discipline here and there? Or is it daily? Is it minute by minute? Um, are you eternally driven? Are you thinking about the souls of other people? I mean, eternity, you know, you think about souls, they lost for eternity, family, friends, you know, school, all that ends on this earth, you know. It doesn't last. Souls last forever. Um, and then, again, are you living according to what cross has done on the cross? And for you non-believers, you know, I just pray that you humble yourselves right now, um, this evening, uh, you humble yourselves to God and that you repent and you believe in the gospel and what he's done for you. Thank you. I'm one of those broken sinners, and uh, I came here to converge with the cross of Christ and people who follow Christ and love him. I am in need of Christ, uh, a broken sinner, lost and destitute, found and rescued by Christ. I also happen to be the pastor of Cross Life, but that's second to who I am in Christ. Great testimonies, great encouragement from my own heart. Uh, we've been looking forward to praying for this evening for quite some time. I want you to know that it's no accident that you're here. really believe that. Uh, am I loud enough? Not at all. This says it's on. Are we good? That's better. Can you guys hear me? All right. Could you hear what I said at the beginning? <laughs> Start over. My name's Tanner Ripley, and... Uh, <laughs> It is such an honor to be here. I want you to know that I don't work alone as the pastor here. I work on part of a team. You've already met two of those people. But if you're staff, could you just stand up real quick? Matt Tebow, Andrew Alberta. Andrew, sit down so we can see Michelle. Thanks. Michelle Tilstra <laughs> and Deontay Flowers. Uh, Michelle was overseeing so much of this barbecue, so much of the food. What a great evening to be together. What a joy to be with you. What a joy to work on team uh, with people who love you, care about you, have been praying for you. All summer, we continued with uh, another series. About 90 of us, 80 of us met in a fireside room on the other side of the church. But in the midst of that, we were praying, preparing, thinking about this night, about being back together with you. Andrew mentioned this, but we spent today on campus uh, with a lot of you here in this room passing out flyers. Perhaps you saw us there. Perhaps that's why you're here. Lots of different conversations. But there was one word that almost always stopped people in their tracks. You know what it was? It wasn't God. It wasn't the church. Jesus. Jesus. 
kept saying campus was like an anthill today. You kicked it, and there's just people everywhere, and they're swarming around. <laughs> and they're going to these different booths, left and right, all around. And when people would actually stop to visit, and you bring up Jesus, that's impactful. That's a name, friends, that carries some weight. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Matter of fact, that's what we're going to talk about this semester. That's why, because of that weight, because of the seriousness of the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ, that's why I've decided to devote this semester to studying who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. Now, there's... Uh, many other things. As we launch into the spring, we'll talk about different things. But this fall, we want you and I myself want to wrestle with who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? As people thought about Jesus today or as people think about Jesus in general, they might try to all together do one thing, that's dismiss him from existence. Pretend that Jesus never lived. I want you to know that that's not an option for us. It's not an option according to the Bible. It's not an option according to even unbelievers. Uh, listen to this quote from uh, Michael Grant. Uh, I don't know if Michael, know, Michael Grant knows Jesus or not, but he's an eminent historian of the Roman Empire. I found this helpful. He says, we can no more reject Jesus' existence than we can reject the existence of a mass pagan personages whose reality is, as historical figures is never questioned. What's he saying there? There's many other people down through history that we wouldn't question their existence. In recent years, no serious scholar has ventured to postulate the non-historicity of Jesus, or at any rate, very few, and they've not d succeeded in disposing of the much stronger, indeed very abundant evidence to the contrary. I read this from Pro Professor Bart Erdman, who is one of, uh, at least in my knowledge, at least my experience with him and listening to him, one of the most ardent atheists that I've ever encountered. He wrote this, I don't think there's any serious historian who doubts the existence of Jesus. We have more evidence for Jesus than we have for almost anyone in this time period. Finally, this, the historical evidence for Jesus himself is extraordinarily good. From time to time, people try to suggest that Jesus of Nazareth never existed, but virtually all historians of whatever background now agree that he did. So let's, at the outset, dismiss that. That's not an option for us. But the question remains, who was Jesus? Let me restate it this way. Who is Jesus? Well, fascinatingly, I'm not the first person to ask that question. That doesn't surprise you. But does that language sound familiar? Who do you say that I am? If you have a Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 16. It's a Bible in your bag or an app in your lap. Grab it, open it, or click it to Matthew 16. The men are also going to put it on the screen up here. What other place can we go but the Word of God to discover who is Jesus Christ? Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13, we read this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Let's understand why we jumped in in the middle of the chapter. Where's Caesarea Philippi? Well, it's in the north-central part of uh, Israel. Uh, my wife and I were there 
two, three years ago now. And three years ago, we got in trouble for, it was really hot. It was like 105 degrees. <laughs> so we had our sandals kicked off and we had our feet in the water running by there. There was all these caves. We got in trouble for having our feet in the water. There's all these caves behind us. My wife just showed up. Remember this, baby? Yeah. Caesarea Philippi was a place where the Canaanites worshipped the god of Baal. After that, the Greeks worshipped the god of Pan, P-A-N. And at this time, the Romans were worshipping Caesar. It was a, I'll use the phrase, pagan place. But worship was happening there. And I've wondered as I've studied Caesarea Philippi, and its similarities to Bozeman. I've wondered if Jesus doesn't come back, if hundreds of years later, people will look back on Bozeman and say, that's a place where people worshipped creatures rather than the creator. That's a place where people worship the philosophies of man rather than bowing before and submitting themselves to the word of God. There's some parallels, I think, between Caesarea, Philippi, and Bozeman. Jesus asked a very important question here. He was getting the spiritual pulse. He was deep into his ministry now, and uh, he was pressing in. He was checking the pulse of what was going on, and he asked this. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And I had to ask the question, who do people say Jesus is today? All kinds of different answers on campus today. Who is Jesus? Uh, who, have Jesus who have people said Jesus is down through history? Take Napoleon, for example. He said this, I know men. Jesus was no mere man. Or take uh, Strauss, the German rationalist. Many of you might recognize his name from classes. He called him the highest model of religion. Or Theodore Parker, a famous abolitionist and liberal pastor who said this, Jesus is a youth with God in his heart. Borderline blasphemous. People have said things about Jesus all down through history, and they're still saying things about Jesus today. And Jesus asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Look at verse 14. They said to him, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. John the Baptist, they thought, maybe was back from the dead. Two chapters earlier, chapter 12, Herod had ordered off with his head. You remember, brought it on a platter. Some thought, maybe this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. Others thought, maybe it's Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the greatest and most highly regarded Old Testament prophets. Uh, maybe they thought other things. That's as far as the disciples went. Only two chapters earlier, interestingly, people accused Jesus of being Satan or Beelzebub. So Jesus was getting called all kinds of things. In verse 15, he narrows it and he says this, but who do you say I am? Jesus takes the question, I'm thinking of a wide stream, flowing stream, saying, who do people say that I am? And it instantly he narrows it into a fast rushing water. And he says, now who do you say that I am? The you here is plural. He's asking the disciples as a whole. And I might ask this question to you today. Who do you say that Jesus is? I wonder as I look out tonight. Simon Peter replied, answered for the group in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was always speaking on behalf of the disciples, and he does so here. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, you're the Son of the living God. You're, 
you're, you're God himself. You're one with God. You're God's son in direct relationship equal to him. Peter made a monumental confession of faith here. Jesus is the promised one who came to save his people. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, you'll know that the first two-thirds of the Bible are Old Testament. What we call Old Testament is the Old Covenant, the Old Promise. And what do we read all through the Old Testament? The prophets are prophesying, the people are speaking, the psalmists are writing and praying again and again. And it's all pointing to what? The Messiah, the seed of David, the one who would come from Israel, the Jew who would come and what? Save his people. The Christ, the Messiah. And now Peter says, that's you, Jesus. That's who we believe you are. Peter's answer on behalf of the twelve here was both that he was Christ, also that he was divine, that he was equal with God. That confession, friends, that claim sets Christ's church apart from every other confession of faith. Every other thing that calls itself Christian or sets up the word Christ. This statement by Peter is absolutely monumental. And if you believe this today, trust me, you don't even have to trust me. You know this by experience. This puts you in a very slim margin of our culture. This puts you in a huge minority in our day. If you believe that Jesus was not just a historical figure, was not just the Messiah who came, who was promised through the Old Testament, but is indeed God, equal with God, the triune God, the Godhead, that puts you in a tiny minority. Peter claimed that on behalf of the disciples. And watch how Jesus answers him in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The supernatural evident uh, that there's a supernatural part of life few would deny. As I visited uh, with a young man today at another booth, he said, uh, I- I'm not sure if I believe in God, but there's too many things that happen that I can't explain to deny his existence. The fact that there is supernatural, the fact that there's more than coincidence, few would deny. But Jesus goes deeper here. He says, God revealed this truth to Peter. Peter didn't come up with this on himself, by himself. In fact, the rest of the Bible affirms that it's God who initiates. If anyone comes to know God, if If uh, Luke or Madison or Noah come to know God, it's not initiated by them. It is the gracious initiation. It is the gracious revelation from another, that other being God. How does God initiate? How does He get His Word out to us? I'm looking at you. How does He get His Word to you? How does He get it to me? Interestingly, He uses people. Can you believe it? Broken, destitute, imperfect people like you and I. If you knew me like my wife knows me, you'd know that I've got a long ways to go. (laughs) And I know a few of you intimately enough to know there's lots of things that you're working on in your life. Can you believe, friends, that God would use (laughs) you or me to get his word out? Can you believe that he would use a broken, fractured, imperfect ministry like Cross Life? Can you believe that you might actually be here, not by accident, not by your own volition, but as a sovereign act of the Lord of the universe? I believe it. I believe it to be true. It's not accidental that you're sitting in the chair tonight. It's not an accident that you're here. Perhaps God has called you here to awaken your soul to the truth. 
Perhaps he's called you here, if you're a believer, to be renewed in the truth, to be stimulated on in the truth, to be pressed on with other believers in the truth. It's no accident that you're here. Jesus continues in verse 18. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, many people were still tame in their response today on campus. The caustic and abrasive attitude, the lack of tolerance towards anything Christian in our culture builds. And friends, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but mark my words, hear me when I say, there will come a day, and it will be sooner than later, that we will not have the freedom to gather openly and have a barbecue like this. There will come a time where we will be shut in, where we will undergo persecution, where we may be like the believers in Hebrews when it says, you have suffered, not to the point of shedding blood, but you've suffered. I believe that the time is coming. I believe, though, listen to me when I say, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The cultural waves, as they ebb and flow, will not prevail against the church. And i got to tell you, for many years I misunderstood this statement. I took it as this, a defensive standpoint. Uh, The church is walled in and it's citadel and nothing's going to get to it. Nothing's going to prevail against it. Friends, quite the opposite. The church is on the offense. The church is moving forward. Christ's church is on the offense. And the gates of hell will not stop it. It's on the offense. No, not as a tiger tank storming through a small village. But as a strategic army with the commander, Christ, at its head and the Word of God as its tool, the people of God as its army. The church of Christ, mark my words, will advance. You should know that it's the army of God pressing on and against the gates. The church, we, the people of God, do not play defense. We press on. So that leaves the question, who's the enemy? (laughs) Who's the enemy? Well, certainly not MSU. Certainly not people. Neither is it the secularist club. Neither is it the people who come by and flip us off. Neither is it the people who, uh, who love science. I assure you that good science and the Bible go hand in hand. Just ask the neuroscience lady. It's never been cross life's goal to make MSU the enemy. It's never been cross life's goal to make the Gallatin Valley the enemy. Rather, it's our goal to see spiritual awakening in the believers in the Gallatin Valley. This, friends, is where the spiritual battle rages. MSU is not the enemy. The Gallatin Valley is not the enemy. It is, friends, the mission field. It is part of the Great Commission. It is right in front of us. The enemy, friends, is Satan prowling around seeking whom he can destroy. Be sure that he is active. The enemy often is not without. It's within. The problem is the cancer of sin ingrained deep in my DNA and your DNA. The very cancer of sin that you and I were born with. The problem is the wickedness inside. The problem is my cosmic treason and your treason against the holy 
God of the universe. The problem is that God is angry with the wicked every day. That, friends, is a great problem. I'll have you know there's only one solution. That solution is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You should know that Satan's tools aren't always as overt as we'd think. I find more often on MSU that he uses tools like apathy. He uses tools like busyness. He uses tools like lack of desire, confusion, worrying about many things, wrong thinking. And as my uh, and as friends Rick Holland says, when we confuse our mission field with our enemy, the Great Commission is impossible. Make sure you get this right. Christ's church will advance and the gates of hell will not overpower it. But do not confuse the mission field with the enemy. Pilate, later on in the Gospels, says this, What shall I do with the one who is called the Christ? That's our question, isn't it? What shall I do with the one who is called the Christ? The option of mindlessly rejecting Him, putting Him off, has at once this evening been taken away from you. That is no longer an option. You are confronted here and now with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the question is not, what will you do with cross life? The question is not, what will you do with sociology? The question is not, what will you do with advanced calculus? The question, friends, is what will you do with Jesus Christ. It's been my prayer and it's my hope that you will join others in saying as Peter did in John 6.66, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go, friends, but to turn wholeheartedly to Christ? For He has the words of eternal life. Oh, oh, how I long for this year to be one of reveling, worshiping, adoring the person of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that's our heart. I want you to know that we desire that we would press in, that we would press on, that we would go deep into adoring and worshiping and loving the person and work of Jesus Christ. When I ask you what you will do with Christ, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? That you would be able to say, you are the Son of the living God. You are the Christ. And what else can I do but fall, bow before you in worship? Oh, that that would be true of us. I hope you'll get on board. I'm unashamedly asking you tonight to consider, tonight, to make a commitment to consistently, not intermittently, not independently, not sporadically, but consistently, along with other believers here, to follow hard after Christ. You make a decision here and now, I would beg of you to follow Christ, to set your course, to set your eyes, to set yourself on the person of Christ can establish you for the rest of your life. Now, will there be trials? Absolutely. Will there be a continuing pressing on? Yes. But let us, friends, tonight set our course. That's why I want to remind you, even though it's my greatest joy, one of my greatest joys, along with being married, 
to my beautiful wife and having one child out and another child on the way, it is one of my greatest joys to participate with you in Cross Life. I am not tonight recruiting you to an organization, to a club. No, no. I am recruiting you, if I can use that word, to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The lion and the lamb. The one who was and is and is to come. Who do you say that he is? Friends, the answer to that question is more important than any test you will take in the next semester. Yea, in the rest of your life. Get it wrong and listen to me when I say you'll have bigger worries than poor grades. I don't say that as a threat. I say that as a warning. In the same way that I wish someone in, in my shoes would have warned you or me when I was your age. Set your course. This is a plea for many of you that, that I fear I may never see again. Choose now. Today is the day of salvation. Let's now, tonight, friends, let it be known that Jesus is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the head of church. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the light of the world. He is the Prince of Peace, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the great shepherd. He is the great high priest. He is the true priest. He is the great I Am. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the King of glory. Oh, that you and I would fall before Him in adoration. Will it be hard? Yes. Will difficulties come? I can promise you they will because the Word of God promises you will. Will it be worth it? Yes. Yes, every bit of it will be worth it. And so join me and others in setting our course this semester to follow Christ with everything that is in us. Let us bow before Him in adoration and worship even tonight. Lord, thank You. Thank You, thank You, thank You that You are King of kings, that You are Lord of lords that you are Prince of Peace, that you are the beginning and the end. What else can we do? Where else can we go? You, Lord, have the words of eternal life. We could never do your word justice. We could never bow before you or worship you as we want to or ought to in this life, Lord, but enable us this semester. God, give us grace to worship you even if in part as you ought to be worshipped. God, use us in each other's life. As I look around this room, I think, what a great cause for the kingdom you could use, men and women here. God, I beg that you do it. No, not for cross life, Lord. I beg that you do it for the praise of your name. Lord, get glory for yourself. Get praise for yourself through us, through a simple wrecked people that you have rescued. We ask this. This is our prayer, our beg, our plea together in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.